Yeah. So my background, I, when I was at Vanderbilt University, I started a fashion blog. I literally just started taking photos outside of my dorm room. I would do everything from going to rent clothes from brands that I liked um, to interviewing and just emailing everyone in the fashion industry to try to build some sort of following. That's Larissa May, a former Instagram fashion influencer and now founder of nonprofit Hashtag Half the Story. I started a fashion blog because I had a goal, but it also was a really big part of building my career. Even during college, Larissa May hustled hard to get fashion world experience. She interned and lived in L.A., New York, and Paris. She covered both New York Fashion Week and, as an exchange student, Paris Fashion Week, too. She even spent one of her birthdays behind the scenes of a photo shoot with Sophia Bush. And of course, she captured it all for her social media accounts. I went back to Vanderbilt and started consulting with a number of brands and sort of built my own social media business when I was in school. I really just had my hands in a lot of different things. But even as she was experiencing the glitz and glamour, just beyond the frame of her Instagram perfect life, things were beginning to fall apart. I started struggling with mental health, specifically depression and anxiety. And a lot of that was related to social media. And although I couldn't get up and go to class and was having suicidal thoughts, I would still get up to take photos for my fashion blog. At the beginning of 2018, the UK charity Education and Employers released the results of a survey of British school children. They asked 13,000 kids to draw what they wanted to be when they grew up. The top three professions were unsurprising. Kids pictured themselves as athletes, teachers, and veterinarians. But the fourth was perhaps a sign of the times. 6% wanted to work in social media or online gaming. In fact, the survey found that a career as a professional YouTuber or live streamer was now more popular than a career as a professional musician or actor. Those jobs had fallen to number 13 in popularity. As a career choice, the appeal of becoming a YouTuber or influencer is understandable. Just glance at the profiles of some of the world's most successful social media stars and the story they tell is one of adventure, fun, and glamour. But as Larissa May found out, that is not the full picture. In this episode, we're going to look at what the other half of that story looks like and ask, is social media a viable career? We'll hear three stories of creators that achieved some level of social media success and what they did or didn't do with it. What you put out there is forever and always out there. I felt like it had got under my skin. It doesn't make any sense. This is Nevertheless, a podcast about learning in the modern age, and I'm your host, Lee Alexander. Larissa May's career as a fashion blogger and Instagram influencer lasted four years. By the time she realized that being an influencer wasn't for her, she'd already garnered 15,000 followers and was working with brands like Coach, Rebecca Minkoff, and Teen Vogue. I had this light bulb moment when I was at Fashion Week and I had a total anxiety attack that I was really only showing half the story and I wasn't the only one. It was me, it was peers in the industry, it was also students on the Vanderbilt campus. In May this year, one of Larissa May's peers, Elle Mills, posted a video to YouTube. 
Do you guys know who Elle Mills is? She is someone who I think is pushing the boundaries of YouTube. Elle Mills. Elle Mills. Elle Mills. Elle Mills. Elle Mills. Have you discovered Elle Mills yet? The video was titled Burnout at 19. This is all I ever wanted. And why the f am I so unhappy? Is it, it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Because, like, this is literally my dream. And I'm so unhappy. It doesn't make any sense. Other prominent YouTubers, such as PewDiePie and Jake Paul, have joined Larissa May and Elle Mills in discussing their mental health issues. I felt that as a result of my own personal struggles, I wanted to find a solution and change the way that we use social media. So she shifted her own dreams of working in fashion. She started an Instagram-based movement to tell the side of the story that doesn't usually make it into the perfect lives portrayed on the platform. She called it hashtag half the story. Yeah, so Half the Story is a nonprofit media platform that encourages you to share a piece of your life that doesn't normally exist on social media. Hashtag Half the Story's Instagram feed is full of black and white photos of Instagram stars often holding a phone with the words hashtag Half the Story on the screen. The idea is that in the captions, they tell more of their struggles than they would typically reveal. Success for myself when I was an influencer truly meant success for myself which means I was getting brand partnerships and I was making money, a lot of money on collaborations. And that was something that I was wanting every week and reaching out to. And now success for me is success for all. And it's really improving and changing the conversation for everyone on social media, creating a more connected space, bringing awareness about mental health and actually delivering these resources to individuals around the world. Many influencers hope to use their social media followings as a launching pad for bigger pursuits, and that's kind of what Larissa May did, though rather than staying in fashion, she pivoted towards something more personally meaningful. But what if you wanted to take a more drastic approach and get rid of your platform entirely? That's the choice that one musician with a following on YouTube made. Her mother, Sarah Perkins, tells us the story. I'm Sarah and I work across digital for Project Literacy, which is Pearson's social impact campaign around the global literacy crisis. Sarah has two daughters, a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old. Both are musicians and both are navigating their relationships to their careers on social media. They're both active on social media, but in very different ways, actually. What's really interesting to me is that the the 12-year-old is a complete kind of Generation Z or Generation Z or iGen, digital native, you know, she was born post-smartphones. And the 22-year-old still remembers an analog world. She didn't have kind of digital in her life until she was much, much older. She'd kind of had a a childhood of walking in the park and watching telly. It's the 22-year-old who decided to get rid of her social media platform. By the way, we're purposefully not saying her name at Sarah's request. The older one, who's now been working in music for four years since she left school, in fact, a little bit before she left school, she was involved in music from a very early stage. And she, YouTube was kind of the only format, I suppose, at the time. So that was a way of her getting her music out there. And she was successful. She had millions of views on her videos, a record deal with an independent label, and just every sign of continuing to develop her career. But she was also under a lot of pressure. She very quickly got the impression that it's kind of like there was an expectation 
that marketing needed to come from her first and that an audience build needed to come from her first and foremost and that there was this you know that the, the kind of record companies needed a huge amount of reassurance that an audience existed before they would invest further and just instinctively is you know she's actually an introvert you can put her in front of a mic and a piano and she can play to a room full of strangers but she's actually an introvert and this idea of also kind of having to sell herself and put up pictures of what she was eating for dinner and her cat and her sofa and her new shoes just to her felt hugely invasive and yet that's what the expectation was that's what she kept being told Journalist Chris Stokel-Walker has written about social media influencers for publications like Wired, The Guardian, and Bloomberg. And from his reporting, the experience of Sarah's daughter is unfortunately common. Creators are under a lot of pressure, and success does not make it easier. In fact, it can make it harder. They've gained fame and recognition, but with that there comes an awful lot of emotional baggage. So there's the fact that you have suddenly to feed this algorithm, which is one of the main drivers of stress. The algorithm is the thing that feeds YouTube, essentially. So it's this black box that nobody really knows how it works. There are a few people who make it their living to analyze how it works. And they say, basically, that you need to post at least three videos every week that are 10 or 12 minutes long in order to just stand still on YouTube. So. There's the fact that the algorithm is kind of a fickle beast that you have to keep feeding. But it's not just the algorithm that needs constant content. There's also the fact that you have a kind of fickle audience who generally follow you as you're on the upward path and have a particular vision of what they feel you should be like and how you should present yourself. So if you change in any way at all, then suddenly they kind of wonder why you have. So you're kind of held in, I don't know, suspended animation is probably the good way to think about it because what brought you to success is kind of what will keep you there. So you have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And that's hard if you're essentially growing up on the platform as Sarah's daughter was doing. She was a teenager when she started putting up videos. You can imagine the difference between, I guess, being a 15-year-old and being a 22-year-old. I guess she suddenly felt really uncomfortable with her as a 15-year-old, where she was at in her musical development and stuff, still being available for public access. So she suddenly felt very paranoid, <laughs> wanted to take back that control. It was that whole digital footprint, that, that thing we're always trying to say to kids about what you put out there is forever and always out there. That's your public history. And she is a brilliant example of someone deciding that they wanted to eliminate that overnight. So with millions of views and a growing fan base on YouTube, Sarah's daughter just deleted everything. All the videos, all the comments, all the view counts, gone. Sarah, of course, understands and empathizes with her daughter's decision, but she's also worried about how the choice is going to affect her career. How is she going to have the same reach and the same outlets for her material. I think that's something she's still absolutely struggling with. 
I think she doesn't know what the alternative is other than getting in the back of a transit van, <laughs> like the good old days, and, you know, playing every pub toilet between here and Land's End. And there isn't a lot of support. She hasn't come across anyone in the music industry that seems to be even considering the sort of mental well-being of artists who are quadruply exp just exposed in a way that artists weren't in the past. I think generally, you know, in, in, in industry across the board, there's not that understanding of the link, that deep understanding of the link between mental health, well-being, feelings of personal sort of boundaries and stuff. Um, and that link just isn't really made. There's just a focus on the commercial viability and a better return on investment because you have a fan base prepared to already buy whatever you do, you know. Yeah, I don't think, that, I don't think there is that understanding or that appreciation. Meanwhile, as Sarah's older daughter has left YouTube and is trying to forge a new path forward for herself, her youngest wants nothing more than to be allowed onto the platform. Meanwhile, her little sister, who is obviously in the very early stages of her ambition, is desperate to have a YouTube account. We haven't given her permission to have one. She has a highly monitored Instagram account where she posts little snippets of songs. But she's desperate for a YouTube account. And she's not alone. But as more and more young people start their own YouTube channels or live stream accounts, it just gets harder. Stokel Walker explains. I did a story for Bloomberg earlier this year, which looked at the rise in the number of YouTubers and the number of videos that are posted. Because you have to remember, this isn't like linear TV. There's no starting at 6 a.m. and finishing at 6 a.m. the next day. This is a massive box of content that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so every time that you post something, there is a diminishing chance of returns. It's like playing the lottery, but having more and more people join the game constantly. The odds of success get smaller and smaller as you go through it. Earlier this year, a study from a German researcher found that the vast majority of aspiring YouTubers, like 96.5%, wouldn't even crack the U.S. poverty line based on their YouTube advertising earnings alone. Even the top 3% of most viewed channels only brought in about $16,800 per year. But then again, it's important to note that making money is only part of the motivation for many social media creators. You know, I work in social media, have done for... 15 years so it's very very difficult for me to preach right and as as someone that loves the creative art arts and who appreciates the idea of you know the free distribution direct consumer everyone has a chance everyone has was you know it's not so much mediation by agents record companies all the people that can stand in the way of someone getting their art whatever the form is out there Sarah's daughters may be navigating their way through the world of YouTube, but both of them were very young when they started. But what happens when that's not the case and you move into social media after an actual career? That's the experience of Matt Lees. My name is Matt Lees and I run a couple of YouTube channels. Shut up and sit down about board games and cool ghosts about video games. When I approached making videos on YouTube, it was effectively my fourth career. I used to work as a magazine journalist and we had some very basic capture equipment so we could get videos made about video games and we started dabbling with that and putting them online and a couple of them really took off and people really liked 
the videos I was making. After that, I got offered a job to specifically just run a YouTube channel for a video game outlet. And uh, they had about a thousand subscribers on YouTube. And in the space of a year, I took them up to about 80,000 and just kind of really dove into it headfirst and had a fantastic time building up an audience and making a lot of fun videos. While it was a fun job, Matt quickly began noticing things about his new field that made him more than a little uncomfortable. The human brain cannot deal with reading hundreds of comments which are about you, people you don't know, openly saying what they think about you. We've invented all of these incredible tools for communication, but I think that when you have these hub networks like this that just give people such access directly to people, I feel like there's something fundamentally that we're just not built for that. And I think the point where I realized something really weird was going on. But I remember reading this one comment and I'm thinking, oh, really bummed out by it, really sad and being like, oh, that's really got to me. That's, that's really, I felt like it had got under my skin. I looked at this guy's avatar and his name and I'm like, Matt, this guy is a literal Nazi. You know, we, were, <laughs> we weren't talking like this guy's got some right wing leanings or this one's dangerous. It was an actual Nazi. And the fact that my brain was still overriding that and going, yeah, but somebody doesn't like you. It's like something here in the way my brain is interacting with this information is fundamentally out of my control to a weird, frightening degree, but also not correct, you know? But it wasn't just the personal attacks that bothered Matt. This platform is encouraging people to just make videos that get lots of views. And the way you do that is basically by being loud and controversial and um, gaudy. But the worst thing was the constant churn of aspiring YouTubers. There's always hundreds of fresh new people wanting to make it on the platform. And there's enough of a appetite that you can have hundreds and thousands of people across the world who are arguably in their own circles incredibly famous all at once. But I think that it leads to a culture of burnout and the fact that the expectation is that you will constantly keep putting stuff out and keep working hard and keep doing what you're asked to do. And when you don't, when you can't do it anymore, you'll be forgotten and new people will come and take your place. Matt decided that to survive on the platform, he needed to make a change. You know, I spent a lot of time switching off comments, for example, or removing advertising in terms of just being like, it doesn't matter now whether or not videos are getting lots of views, and it doesn't matter if people are getting a lot of interaction, a lot of uh, engagement, all this stuff that everybody loves. Instead of depending on clicks and on constantly producing content, Matt has found a way to find financial success by producing slowly for a small niche audience. And so I was one of the first people to really jump onto platform, uh, platform called Patreon, which has now become much, much, much more widespread, and to uh, take a different approach of not trying to produce work that got huge amounts of traffic, but just trying to produce work that a small amount of people liked. And that's the kind of ethos I've tried to continue, really. And uh, I've tried to avoid chasing after numbers and avoid looking at numbers, really. But again, Matt Lees hasn't had a conventional career. He's had a lot of life experience. I'd already worked in market research, PR, journalism, and then video. So I had a much better understanding of the world and a much better understanding of, of when your work relationship, when your work-life balance was wrong. And I think with lots of people getting into this when they're age 16, 17, it's just hugely damaging because A, you're working on your own. B, your role models are not good role models. And then they might burn out and you might replace them and then you'll burn out and be replaced. The way Matt describes the world of social media sounds like an assembly line of factory workers, except the factory's digital. And when something breaks down on that assembly line, there aren't really structures in place to deal with it. 
when you get very big, you have some support networks, but even then, they're nothing like TV or films. So you're doing things on a shoestring budget, in a way, and you're required to do all sorts, kind of like five or six jobs in one. That was Chris Stokel-Walker, the journalist again. Larissa May of Hashtag Half the Story adds this. And I do think that every influencer agency should have some sort of um, almost like a wellness committee that's really working and checking in on the well-being of their, their talent in the same way that a manager of a model is hopefully checking in on their well-being as well. Because social media and mental health are are correlated and these people need to be checked in on. They need to be monitored because when social media is your life and your social media presence is paying your electricity bill, it's a lot harder to create boundaries around that. But most of these content creators never get to the point where they are big enough to have agencies or other support. That's why Matt Lees believes that the problem is bigger. I remember there are pop-ups on the back end of YouTube sometimes that say, hey, take a break. Hey, don't work too hard. And it's like, well, yeah, but you've literally designed the algorithms on your platform to reward people who put up videos every day. This sounds pretty bleak. And if we go back to that original question of, is social media a viable career? It might seem like the answer should be a resounding no. But maybe it's just a matter of finding the right way. Moving beyond the internet's obsession with clicks and with scale, being more thoughtful about how we use these communication tools to actually serve creators and not have the creators serve the algorithms and the advertisers. Because ultimately, Larissa May, Matt, Sarah, and her daughter may all be concerned, but they're also finding ways forward. Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Series producer is Renee Richardson. Executive producers are Nathan Martin and Anjali Ramachandran. This episode was produced and written by Eileen Guo. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer and Michael Simonelli. Supported by Pearson and presented by me, Lee Alexander. More episodes plus full transcripts and additional reading can be found on our website, neverthelesspodcast.com. Subscribe free, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This week's unsung hero is Sophie Dean, author of Detective Dot, a book to encourage girls to be curious in code. Sophie is also the founder of Bright Little Labs.